It's looking increasingly clear, folks. The economy has taken on too much debt. Interest rates can't rise substantially without threatening to crash the entire system. But instead of exercising concern, Wall Street is partying hard with today's cheap liquidity in a speculative orgy. Unless the situation changes dramatically, we're hurtling towards an inevitable meltdown moment for the markets. There, is willing, there, are, there are willing sellers at very high prices willing to sell their stock at these current level to buyers who are willing to overpay for them. The problem comes when this exogenous event comes along for whatever reason, all of a sudden, all, this, all the buyers that are currently buying want to sell. The problem is there's no buyers there. The buyers are going to be a lot lower, 20, 30, 40, 50% lower than current levels. And that's why the next crash will be even more brutal than the one we saw in March of 2020. Today's guest expert is the chief editor of The Real Investment Report. His weekly analysis, commentary, and amazingly instructive charts earn him well-deserved frequent appearances in financial media channels like Reuters, Bloomberg, and The Wall Street Journal. He's also the chief strategist of Real Investment Advisors. I'm thrilled to welcome Lance Roberts to the program today. Lance, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, Lance, let's start with a question I like to ask all our guests before we introduce any biases here. Could you just give us your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Sure. Very quickly, if you had to put it into a nutshell, there's the global economy and really, and we can put this into context of you know, Europe as well as uh, the emerging markets as well as the U.S., of course, all these economies and markets in general are being fueled by an unprecedented level of monetary liquidity from the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of China, the Bank of Japan, et cetera. This is, a, this is not a new story, but what is a new story, I guess, from the standpoint of all this is that we have moved into a, an, an evolution of the markets that we haven't seen since really 1999 for most people. We have seen this previously back through history but this is that point in time and in history where we don't care about fundamentals. We don't care about valuations. Those don't matter. It's simply just what is moving up, what's moving up the fastest, how do I get into it the quickest? And we're seeing this from, you know, not just the fact that we're seeing very large cap stocks like Apple, Microsoft and others do well, but we're also seeing a record number of issuances of IPOs of money losing companies. We're seeing a lot of the same sentiment from investors that we saw back in 1999. Uh, an example of this, of course, is Robinhood just going public today. Here's this app where um, investor, young retail investors are taking advantage of Wall Street. We've never seen that before, right? Well, not so fast. In 1999, there was a great cover on Forbes showing how young, young investors were taking advantage of Wall Street using their computers at home. Uh, you know, and E-Trade, of course, at that point was yeah. the Robinhood back then. So. You know, none of this is new. None of this is different. It all seems like this time is different, but it's really not. Okay. Um, so it sounds like it's fair to say that you think that we are seeing uh, mania, exuberance, uh, excessive optimism in the markets, and maybe some late stage signs of such, you know, where you're seeing, you know, anybody that kind of can go public uh, with a pulse, forget about profits, uh, is taking advantage of this uh, this market window opportunity while they can. Um, oh. 
right. And you, you've talked in some of your recent writing lances about a potential Minsky moment for these markets. And, and I want to get to that because you, you really went through uh, just a, a phenomenal progression of uh, what I would consider sort of very brightly uh, blinking warning signs uh, on, on, on sane investors' dashboards. But really quick before we get there, uh, yesterday, uh, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, held a press conference, um, one that many observers like former PIMCO CEO Mohamed Al-Aryan uh, categorized as most confusing. Uh, could you just quickly unpack what was said yesterday and what it might mean? Sure, absolutely. Um, basically, <laughs> this kind of reminds me of uh, a lot of the speeches I've come, uh, you know, I've heard lately coming from a lot of White House officials as well. Um, it's these kind of these incoherent ramblings of, you know, ideas and and comments and topics, but none of them really tie together. And here's what's interesting: if you ever watch Jerome Powell, when he starts taking questions from the media. He'll get a question and you'll notice he will actually look down at his notes and look back up and then answer the question. Where he gets in trouble is when somebody asks him a question that is not in his notes. And that's where you'll start to see him really kind of stutter and stumble and fumble and really say incoherent things. Like when he was asked, hey, why are you still buying mortgage bonds when we have another bubble in the housing market? And that was a, a two minute incoherent rambling of, well, we, we, sort of, we kind of need to buy them, I guess. Right. And that's, that's a reporter who's probably not going to be invited back next time, too. Right. <laughs> exactly. The point. Here's the nutshell of yesterday uh, that, look, the Fed is in a box and this is a very difficult box for the Fed to be in. You're already doing one hundred and twenty billion dollars a month. You've got zero interest rates. All of a sudden, GDP came in today. Um, wait, I'm sorry. Let me back that up. Uh, the latest report on GDP just came in at six and a half percent. Now, that's one of the strongest growth rates we've had, had since the 80s, no doubt about that. The problem with it is, is that in April, the Atlanta Fed thought we were going to be at 13.5% economic growth. It fell 50% in less than a quarter to get to that 6.5% report. Now, why is that important? Well, the Fed's doing everything they can to help stimulate economic growth. Economic growth is slowing. Those deflationary pressures of the debt overhang, credit indulgences, et cetera, are all starting to weigh on those economic composites that are inside of that GDP component. Primarily, 70% of that is consumption. And now that we've run through stimulus, a lot of those extra checks, a lot of those extra cash flows that were coming in to pe for people to run out and buy new pools and RVs, et cetera, that's been done. So now those deflationary pressures are starting to show back up on the economic side of the equation. And this puts the Fed in a very difficult box where they're starting to talk about, hey, we realize we need to taper. They put that on the table in terms of their statement that they made. Their written statement came out and said, hey, you know, there's a potential. We'll start talking about talking about tapering potentially as soon as September. That'll be the Jackson Hole meeting. The problem for the Fed is when they start to try to actually taper that QE, that monetary liquidity, the market's going to fall rapidly. And then they're in, they're in the real trap of having to either go back to doing $120 billion a month in a QE or having to let the actual markets correct, which is a, a direct impact to consumer confidence. It leads to a recession. They're in a very, very difficult spot right now with monetary policy. Uh, gosh, well, I, I agree. And it's interesting because it seems like the stock market's kind of calling the Fed's bluff a little bit, um, that it, it, it took those comments yesterday is fairly dovish. I mean, the markets are, are bouncing up today and gold gold bounced up as well. Um, interestingly, that bonds sort of seem to tell a slightly different story. 
um, with yields continuing to fall. I think Powell even was asked about that and was sort of flummoxed saying, I don't, we, we don't entirely know why. Um, and I do want to ask you about the, the different stories that the stock market and bond markets are telling. But we'll get to that in the Minsky part in just a moment here. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to get your feedback on just two things. One, um, Powell uh, kind of changed the game on folks where he was asked to define what transitory really means. And he said, well, it doesn't mean that we think that the price inflation we've seen is actually going to abate. In other words, that prices are going to come down. We just don't think we're going to see further inflation after this initial wave runs out. And I think that did surprise people because I think people right. had a very different definition of transitory in their head. Uh, and then secondly, he said that the, the Fed really is going to prioritize its mandate of uh, maximum employment more than it is price stability in the short term. He, he really kind of said, we're not, we're okay with letting inflation be hot for a while. We really want to get people back to work. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people think that that's maybe being a little bit, it's a little bit of reckless hubris on the Fed's part to feel that inflation is not a threat here. But let me hand the football back to you. <laughs> no problem. Uh, well, let's talk about both of these components really quick. So let's start with inflation. So from the inflationary standpoint, he is right. I'm gonna. I'm going to say that the Fed is right that inflation is transitory at this point. And here's, but I say that with a big caveat, right? So there's a big asterisk at the end of this at this statement. So don't jump off the cliff just yet. Used car prices are right now pricing out even higher than a new car, right? That should not be happening. But that was a function of the fact that during the pandemic. Um, auto uh, rental car companies sold all their inventory, right? So they had to replace all their inventory when the economy opened back up again. So this has created a dearth of new cars and new cars when it was combined with the supply chain crunches, the shutdown of the semiconductor manufacturing, the fire. I mean, just a collusion of events, the fire in the semiconductor plant for Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, there's just a whole collusion of events came together that created a supply shortage in the auto industry has led to these abnormally high prices. That is not sustainable. So those prices will decline. The housing market, there's been a big story over the last year. And I wrote an article in November of 2020 saying there is no such thing as a housing shortage. And what we're seeing now is housing inventory starting to come back up. When prices reach a certain point in the housing market, people will stop buying houses. It's just a function of that. When people stop buying houses, people that wanted to sell houses are going to rush to market to try to capture high prices. Inventory returns, prices fall. So housing prices are transitory. So those two components are making up almost 50% of the increase in CPI. Now, notice I said 50%. The other 50% is food, gasoline, the things that everybody spends money on. Those are sticky and that's that inflation is not going away. But that's the inflation that impacts consumption, 70% of GDP, because wages aren't rising to compensate for the higher living costs that we currently have going on. And that's not going to change. Where the Fed is right that it's transitory is that if I have um, a bag of Oreo cookies that this year cost me $2, and next year still cost me $2 because prices went up, my inflation rate on the year over year basis is zero. So all of a sudden inflation went away, right? No, we're still having to pay more than ever for a bag of Oreo cookies, but because it didn't go up on a year over year basis, it's now zero in terms of inflation. So that's where the Fed's trying to, you know, kind of thread this needle on, de on deflation in the economy. They're talking about year over year rates of change. And that doesn't mean that that's gonna ease up on the consumer. Now, let's jump over to, to employment real quick. 
he is sorely mistaken about full employment. And this is going to be a huge problem for him going forward. Again, as I said a minute ago, he's trapped into this economic, you know, quantitative easing monetary policy, expecting to get that back down to 3% unemployment. We will get back down to 3% unemployment because we have a record number of people leaving the labor force on a regular basis because they're working three part-time jobs. They're, they're uh, sitting on the sidelines for one reason or another. And we have this idea right now, we have record job openings. We have more job openings than there are actual people to work. And so there's, a, there's 12 million people that are gonna try to come back to, to the labor force here over the course of the next year, supposedly. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of people that A, are not gonna return to the labor force, period, ever, the end, particularly if we start to pass this three and a half to $5 trillion um, you know, American Families Plan through the Biden administration that's going to provide extra child care benefits, extra income to households, UBI checks, whatever it is that they want to provide. There is enough money coming into the household that that's going to be a disincentive for people to go back to work. So as, as those people fall off the labor rolls, unemployment will fall back down towards that three to four to five percent level. But the real employment situation in the economy is going to be far worse Look, the labor force participation rate today is lower than at any other recessionary bottom we've had in history. So, you know, we're not creating the labor force. Almost 50% of the, the working age population is sitting outside the labor force right now. That certainly doesn't say that we're near full employment in this economy in any measure. Right. And it's crazy because they don't report on that normally. They just talk about the, the unemployment rate. Um, and they don't talk about all the people who aren't even being factored into that calculation because they're outside <laughs> of the labor force. So, um, you know, basically with most government stats, the situation is usually much worse than the reported stats seem to indicate. Okay, so you talk about sticky inflation, you know, it looks like in a lot of these key um, you know, key elements of our daily cost of living, we're just going to have to be stuck and live with some of the price increases we've seen over the past year. Uh, and you're saying that the uh, labor situation uh, is going to be worse going forward than our baseline before, because we're going to have this disincentive for, for people to, to enter the labor, re-enter the labor force. And we've also had a lot of people claim early retirement and all that stuff because of COVID. All right. right. So now getting to the approaching Minsky moment that you see coming for the markets, can you start quickly just by defining what a Minsky moment is? Sure. Uh, Hyman Minsky wrote um, a paper on this, and this was you know back early on and, and when he was writing about the ideas of what happens when you have too much credit and debt going on in an economy, it leads to speculative investments in markets, right? If you, if you give a lot of people a whole lot of money, there's, they're going to run out of good ideas. And then they're going to start spend, investing money in really bad ideas, right? Money losing companies, et cetera. So what a Minsky moment is, is when there is this period of time and an exceptionally long expansion, both in an economy and in a bull market, that leads to this aggressive speculative investing mentality, that eventually leads to problems. Now, here's the key point about this. It's, it's a paradox called the stability of instability. In other words, long periods of stability where markets just go up, the economy's fine, it's all great. We get very complacent in that type of environment and we begin to take on more and more risk. Example, now in the financial markets, what do I have to lose, right? I, I buy companies that have no earnings, it's fine. They keep going up because the Fed's buying $120 billion a month. This is called moral hazard. Moral, the definition of moral hazard is that I have an insurance policy against risk. 
And the interesting thing about that is that's what the, the Federal Reserve has created. Now, whether or not you agree that the money actually winds up in the market is irrelevant. It either winds up there physically or psychologically, because as long as the Fed is doing QE, the idea is, is I can't lose money, so I buy stocks. That's moral hazard. I've got an insurance policy from loss. That leads to very low volatility periods until the point that something goes wrong. And then that low volatility leads to an exceptionally high level of volatility very quickly, like we saw back in March of 2020. All right, very well and concisely defined. Um, I wanna go through a number of different markers of building instability with you, if we can. I mentioned at the beginning here that you're a phenomenal chartist, and I'd like to bring up a lot of your charts here sure. as we talk to them. Uh, I guess real quickly before I do, um, do you see the Minsky moment being some sort of exogenous uh, surprise, sort of like COVID was last year, or do you see it as just being some mathematical limit that as we place these straws on the camel's back, one of them eventually is going to break it. Um, it has to, it almost by definition has to be an exogenous event that occurs. And the reason is, is that remember the markets are a function of psychology, right? It's you, it's me, it's everybody that's participating in the markets. And we have this idea that, hey, as long as we're invested, markets are going up, it's all fine, right? So if there is an increase in debt or if there is a slower than expected GDP number, we quickly rationalize that as to why that's actually a good thing and why that's not a problem now. As an example, I'm writing a report here talking about second quarter earnings and, and kind of where we are. We've got a phenomenal beat rate of earnings at the moment. That's fantastic. Um, we're going to have roughly $173 a share in earnings by the end of this year, according to the S&P. Sorry, $174 a let me rephrase that. By the end of this year, 2021, we're going to have $174 a share in earnings. That's phenomenal, right? So since the March lows, the market is up 100%. We're up now further than we were in January of 2020. Now, why is January 2020 important? Because in January of 2020, we were trading around 33, 3,400 on the S&P 500. And guess what the 2021's earnings estimate was? in January of 2020 is $173 a share. So here we are a year later with markets 50% higher than they were back in January of 2020, yet earnings are exactly the same. We on were the same nine, earnings, yeah. On the same earnings, paying 19 times forward earnings in January of 2020, paying 26 times those same earnings today. So we rationalize, the point about this is that we rationalize anything that comes along Low, weaker earnings, stronger profit growth, whatever. As long as the bullish mentality is in place, we will rationalize those earnings. And because of that, whatever impacts the market has to be an exogenous, unexpected event that trips psychology because we have to change the psychology. We have to change the attitude of investors coming in every morning to buy to all of a sudden they all show up and go, I'm out. And this is the problem with, and this is why going forward, crashes in the markets are going to be faster, sharper, deeper, and more dramatic than we've ever seen before in history, much like we saw in March of 2020. And that's an example of what we're going to see going forward, because we're all doing passive investing now. We're all buying ETFs. We're all buying uh, these investments to say, we're just going to hold them until the moment that something breaks in the market, then we sell them all at once. And the buyers, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a statement that markets, uh, you know, for every... There's a statement that says for every buyer, there's a seller in the market. That is absolutely correct. The problem is at what price? And this is the most important thing for investors to understand. 
Right now, there is willing there are, there are willing sellers at very high prices willing to sell their stock at these current level to buyers who are willing to overpay for them. The problem comes when this exogenous event comes along for whatever reason. All of a sudden, all this all the buyers that are currently buying want to sell. The problem is there's no buyers there. The buyers are going to be a lot lower, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent lower than current levels, and that's why the next crash will be even more brutal than the one we saw in March of 2020. All right, well said, and, and you're underscoring something that I talk about a lot, which is the importance of the marginal buyer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when you exhaust the marginal buyers willing to overpay, the big question is, okay, how far down is the next one, right? Exactly. And during a period of a panic, it might be really far down there. All right, well, let's start going through your charts, um, Lance. I'm gonna put one up here, uh, showing basically the surge uh, in uh, debt in the system uh, over the past bunch of decades. Um, and it compares that to similar growth in the GDP. And we can very clearly see here that debts have been growing way faster than GDP or, or our national income, right? right? So this is your exact comment about, hey, you give people more money uh, than, than they really, you know, can afford to have uh, you know, under sane circumstances, and they're gonna start doing silly things with that money, right? There's still gonna be a lot of malinvestment and whatnot. Another thing that tends to happen is uh, some of that money begins to pool up in, in pockets of the system. And the same chart shows just a, a, a real cratering uh, in, in you know, recent era uh, in money velocity, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think both of those are probably Big warning signs, but but why don't you tell us why you included those in there? Both debts increase, uh, growing faster than income, and then velocity of money really beginning to fall off a cliff here. Right. Um, when we're talking about a Minsky moment, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the Minsky moment is going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. Right now, we're fully invested in the markets. We're you know trading our our portfolios, making money for our clients because we have to. That's our job. The reason as a portfolio manager that we look at these things and discuss ideas like a Minsky moment is because that's the risk that potentially takes a large chunk of capital away from our clients and our investors. So it's very important to understand what the risks are that we're dealing with in the overall marketplace. And the reason the Minsky moment is so incredibly important is because it will lead to a very sharp decoupling in the market when it occurs. And when we start talking about a Minsky moment, and this is the basis of Hyman Minsky's work is, is that when you apply a lot of debt into an economic system, you're going to start creating bad behaviors. The theory is, and this is the Fed's theory, is that you know, by providing, they even said this in the Fed statement, by the way, they said that by providing this monetary liquidity, that is going to help provide loans and transfer of capital in the system. It's a great sentiment. It's not happening. Monetary velocity has been collapsing ever since the Fed has become what we call uber active beginning in 2000 and trying to manipulate kind of monetary policy and markets. And after 2008, it has been at even collapsing at a faster rate because why are banks going to loan people money for 30 years to buy a house at 2% where they can take that same capital and invest it in a higher rate of return and other assets? So there's a lack of incentive for banks to create loans and for banks to push money into the monetary system. And this is why, despite the fact that we have these massive increases in debt, economic growth continues to actually be extremely weak. And this is one of the things that we're going to see over the next, really the next two to three years, economic growth post the pandemic. We're going to have this little spurt of activity because we put, <clears throat> excuse me, 
we're going to have the spurt of activity in 2020 and 2021 economically because we put roughly $8 trillion into a $20 trillion economy. And, and with that much of, of, a, of an impact of capital on GDP, you're going to get a lift. The problem is once that capital moves through the system, there's nothing left. And economic growth is going to fall back to its normal baseline of below 2% growth by the end of 2022. It's going to be very hard to justify a lot of the things that we're doing. But here's a real number for you. So starting in 2008, if we take a look at everything the Fed has done and the government has done since 2008, the Fed and the government at all have now put in more than $43 trillion of capital into the economy. Now, $43 trillion into a $20 trillion economy, that's, that sounds like a great deal. How much growth did you get out of that $43 trillion? You got $3.5 trillion worth of economic growth. That's $12 for every $1 worth of economic growth that you're getting. And I don't care what kind of investor you are, that's a terrible rate of return. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. So uh, basically, the government, Fed, Congress, et cetera, have um, flooded 43 trillion into the market since 2008. And all we got for it was um, a tiny fractions worth of growth in this t-shirt, uh, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, you know, if we look over, I want to go through just a couple of quick charts here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what the Fed has done is it has succeeded in blowing, you know, more asset bubbles, right? You know, coming preceding 2008, we had the uh, excesses that led to the, the global financial crisis. Uh, post 2008, you think we would have learned our lesson not to blow bubbles. But you know, looking at some of these charts that you put up here, uh, if you overlay the Fed's balance sheet over the S&P 500, uh, you can see that they are extremely correlated. And you actually tell us how correlated they are. Uh, right. You show that they've got uh, uh, you know, an R squared that really makes it hard to deny that uh, this is extremely correlated and, and very likely highly causal. Right. right. Um, so they're, they're blowing these asset bubbles in addition to not really giving us the growth that they're saying that they're trying to achieve by, by putting all this, this stimulus into the system. Um, so then I'm going to put up this chart, which you sort of referenced earlier. Um, it shows that we have these periods of going from low volatility to high volatility to low volatility to high volatility. And it seems to me that what the Fed and government overall is doing is just making the system more and more unstable so that the next time we switch from a, a low volatility, volatility period into a high volatility period, it's going to be much more violent. And I think you used maybe even the same words a few minutes ago. So, you know, anything you want to add to this in terms of uh, the progression that we're, we're, we're moving further towards here? Yeah. So, you know, when you take a look at, at the Fed balance sheet, and, and this is an important, uh, you know, comment to make. And, and yeah, when you look at the correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and the S&P 500, there's a very high correlation between the increases in the Fed balance sheet and the S&P 500 itself. And, you know, there's a lot of argument and it depends if you if you want to talk to, to Fed members, they'll say, oh, absolutely not. The, the, the money that we do in QE has nothing to do with the financial markets. Okay. Maybe not directly, and, and I'll give you that. I can make a case that there's actually money coming directly into the markets from this Fed liquidity, but we'll save that argument for another day. There's a psychological impact of quantitative easing in the markets. In other words, when the Fed is doing their work, people you just make the assumption there is no risk. The people make the assumption the Fed is actually buying stocks. And you know, you and I and everybody else get emails all the time and questions like, well, the Fed's actually buying stocks, aren't they? There's the plunge protection team. 
you know, make that argument. It's the quantity, it's, it's, the, it's the psychological impact that induces investors to take on more risk. And this is something that Ben Bernanke said exactly in 2010, and people forget about this, but in 2010, just before he launched, this was coming out of Jackson Hole, he made the statement that as they were getting ready to launch QE2, the second round of this, he said, the reason we're doing this is to instill consumer confidence to lift asset prices. And if asset prices go up, that will induce consumers to go take on more risk. In other words, they'll, they'll be more active in the economy. And this is going to lead to economic growth. That is exactly the point of what the Fed does with QE. They are trying to psychologically create animal spirits in the markets to get people to act. And then by driving rates to zero, it leaves investors no alternative but to move assets from safe assets like money market funds into risk assets trying to get some rate of return on their money. It creates a you know, this moral hazard we addressed earlier, creates, creates tremendous risk for investors, and they don't even realize how much risk they're taking on at this point. But this leads to these periods of volatility and, and non-volatility. And, uh, and to Hyman Minsky's points, if you take a look at 2017 as an example, we had a full year in 2017 where there was left, there were no days in the entire period of 2017 where there was more than a 1% drawdown on a daily basis. That led to 2018 where you had two 20% plus corrections that led to 2019 where you had several corrections at that point and to 2021 we had a 35% drawdown. And if you look at a, a chart of the S&P, you can just see these volatile swings just getting broader and broader until we started QE4, which is what we're doing now. And all of a sudden we've gone back to a period of very low volatility advance. We've had, a, we've had the longest, uh, one of the longest spades on record right now without a 10% decline. We've got a very long spade of run right now in the markets without a 5% decline. So again, volatility has become very compressed and that's gonna lead at some point. Now look, let me be clear, not tomorrow, not next week, next, not next, next month, I don't know when, but these compressed levels of volatility will lead to some point where there's going to be a very high level of volatility as that rubber band becomes unwound. Right. And, you know, I think all we can do is really just sort of assess probabilities in the interim. So we look at factors that, that are good indicators of buildup of um, excessive risk in the system. Let me say right. that. Um, so I want to I want to show just a couple other charts here. Here, um, one is of margin debt, um, and this is showing that just margin debt has you know, a never been higher, and, and b really never been growing as fast as it is right now. Uh, and, and the negative cash balances that companies that are uh, you know borrowing this debt are taking on. Um, to me, this just looks like an incredibly ticking time bomb that is ticking very loudly in my ears. But how are you interpreting it? Well, it is now. Uh, there's a there's a, a very specific thing about margin debt that you know individuals need to be careful of. When you look at a chart of margin debt, right? It's a it's at a record level. We've got record levels of negative cash balances, and people assume it's like, oh my gosh, I can't be in the markets right now because this margin debt is just all going to blow up at some point. And you're right, it will. But it when that's the question, right? It needs a trigger in order to cause that reversion in margin debt. Margin debt provides the fuel to advance the markets. In other words, if there was no such thing as margin debt and I couldn't borrow money, right? I could only invest what I had in my account, right? And so I would run out of liquidity very quickly to help push asset prices higher. We talked about marginal buyers uh, a few minutes ago. So margin debt provides me to buy more and take on more risk in my portfolio than I normally would. 
So on the way up, it's, 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 it's fuel, right? It provides fuel to keep driving the car. Margin debt, though, is also very dangerous in the standpoint that when the market does reverse, it also provides the accelerant for the crash that comes exactly. after that. And it's much like a can of gasoline. As, you know, if I take a can of gasoline and I store it in my garage away from the heater, right? It's absolutely nothing wrong with it, right? It'll just sit there until I'm ready to put it in the lawnmower or whatever I want to do with it. So gasoline by itself is inert. There's no danger in a can of gasoline until you introduce a catalyst. That catalyst is what causes the problem with margin debt. And when, and the thing about margin debt that a lot of young investors really don't understand about margin debt is that when the price of your account starts to decline, you're going to get a phone call from the, your, your lovely broker dealer that provided you that margin line and say, I need you to either put in more cash or liquidate positions today. And if you don't do it today, I will liquidate them for you. And that's the problem with margin debt because once those margin calls start occurring, then that starts forcing more and more liquidations into the markets, driving prices lower, which trigger more liquidations, which drive prices lower, so forth and so on, until you exhaust that margin debt. And given how much margin debt we have, out, we have outstanding, a 50% decline in the market is not going to be a surprise. Yeah, exactly. It's that self-reinforcing cascade that I think is the real concern when you look at those numbers. All right, so really well described. Um, all right, this next chart is of um, really poor quality debt, CCC debt. Um, and uh, it's showing that it's trading at really just yields that I think people that have been in the debt market for a long period of time, just I, I think are just incomprehensible that they're being priced as this safe given the quality of these companies. Well, see, you know, triple C credit, um, you know, is one thing I don't think, again, it's something that most investors don't even realize what it is. Triple C credit is one step above default. Th these are companies that have not defaulted just yet, but they're like one payment shy of defaulting. Um, or they just, or they're actually in default and it's just the banks haven't classified them to be actually in default yet. So, but they're right there, they're on the border. And these are those zombie companies that we keep talking about quite often in the marketplace where by having low interest rates and by having easy access to credit and by getting bailouts uh, during the financial crisis and PPP loans, et cetera, we kept a lot of businesses in business that should have gone out of business. Now that has a negative economic impact longer term because it's, it, it keeps innovation from coming in to replace those companies and creating better economic growth and opportunities. So, but, but by having this low debt, low, 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 uh, low interest rates, investors, as I said earlier, they're looking for a return on investment. And so I can't, I'm getting zero in my money market account. I can get 1% on a 10-year treasury, 1.2. Oh, look at this. I can get 3% on triple, on triple C credit. That sounds like a good deal because it's not called junk credit. It's called high yield debt. So why wouldn't I want high yield? What people don't realize that they're getting into is stuff that is eventually going to go into default. But again, the, the, the Federal Reserve has created moral hazard here, which is why yields are priced so low on these bonds, because during the pandemic, what did the Fed do? They came in and started buying junk bond ETFs, bailing out investors that were buying junk bonds that should have paid the price for taking on that risk at those levels. We hope you've been enjoying this excellent discussion with investment manager Lance Roberts. The interview continues over in part two, where Lance explains why he's so confident that the caution the bond market is signaling 
will trump the current exuberance of the stock market. He also shares how he's currently positioning his portfolio to still be able to invest in today's markets while protecting against downside risk. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. Oh, but before you go, please don't forget to click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. It only takes a second and it really helps us out as the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name guests that we can attract onto this program in the future. And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration the macro risks and market opportunities mentioned by Lance here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with Lance Roberts. Thank you.